welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. everyone. Welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch, and today we have joining us Carl Thienis, uh, who is a repeat guest, uh, who is also a spiritual director here at Spiritual Wanderlust, as well as a poet, a father, and what I might call a religious explorer. So I have been excited to talk to you and catch up. And before we hopped on the air here, we were just talking about um, identities and attachment. And I have a lot of thoughts on that as well. So I'm wondering if you would like to share um, what life has been teaching you about that. Yeah, for sure. So um, yeah, as we were saying, I um, my family has gone uh, for the week and I'm kind of here uh, home alone uh, for the week. And I've been uh, struggling with trying to understand um, kind of like what I'm supposed to do with this time now that I have in front of me, which is always the question we have, right? When we wake up in the morning, it's, well, how am I, how am I going to respond to the fact that I'm here again? And I have this incredible palette of opportunities in front of me and, you know, what, what paintbrushes do I use and, and how do I proceed through that? And, uh, and for me, as I, you know, put them on the plane and, and went back to work and, and then started thinking about what I want this upcoming week to be like, I, I had this very strange kind of different feelings come over me on the one hand, super excited to have some, some time to, uh, to be, to be silent and to have some solitude and go on walks and catch up on my reading, right? All these things that we would love to do. Uh, everybody has a laundry list of things that they'd love to do if they had the time. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I have that incredible opportunity, but on the other hand, to not have my kids here and my wife gone and, and right. All of these things, markers of my life of who I, uh, see myself right as a, a husband and a father and and all of that um, and to to have those removed even for a short period um, is just a strange feeling because I'm I'm also a little lost honestly um, you know as I I get the house all clean and nobody's here to dirty it up so now I do right um, and it's a, that's a trivial you know kind of a, a trivial example but um, it's just interesting what a what how much of our identity is wrapped up in these titles or these roles that we have, which are beautiful things, right? And especially you know, husband and father, who who wouldn't think that that's a good calling um, or a noble calling, right? Um, but to have it even temporarily removed is just a strange feeling of realizing that I'm not the roles that I've taken on. Um, there's something deeper about who I am that that is revealed in these moments when the mm. the duties of those roles are um, are kind of off the center stage for the moment. Um, and so anyway, so it's a strange feeling of excitement about maybe trying to figure out who I am without having those roles, um, but also just a little bit lost without them. Uh, so it's a strange, it's a strange feeling. Yes, I get that. And I, so much of that makes, brings me back to, you know, when I first fell ill, like 
nine, 10 years ago and having all of the roles stripped for me of like who I thought I was and Kelly, who was gonna be, you know, the sister, the one who was gonna go be this joyful servant and love everybody. And all of a sudden I was like bedridden and I I couldn't even smile, let alone, you know, mm. serve people. <laughs> like I was so, you know, weak in bed. And that, that can cause such an, like an identity crisis. You know, and I think of so many dear people that I talk with in spiritual direction who are grappling with that, you know, whether it's, you know, divorced or empty nesting or retiring or any of those big life changes. And all of a sudden, you know, I've been a nurse for 30 years or I've been like a mom for this long or it's just remarkable how much we get tied up with those things. And and I'm noticing for myself as I've been grappling with some health issues lately, just my level of attachment that I didn't realize I had until <laughs> it was like really <laughs> stripped from me. I'm like, dang it. Like, I know these things, but I just, oh, you know, um, sometimes it just uh, gets thrown in your face. Like, I mean, similarly, wouldn't it would be strange not to have some level of attachment to health, you know, to want mm -hmm. health and that to be present for you. But then when it's stripped away, <laughs> And I was just surprised at the amount of um, interior resistance that I felt. And I think I've shared this with you before. I mean, that mm -hmm. was, you know, also what prompted me to check out like 12 steps for chronic pain and chronic illness, because I was like, I have a lot of anger in here, <laughs> like, <laughs> that this is where I am in life. Um, which was also something that kind of surprised me, or at least some parts of me. Um, the anger is what surprised you? Yeah, just I, I think not just the anger, because I mean, oftentimes when I'm struggling with health, I'll have at least an initial like, Ugh, you know, or something that's not entirely positive, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's anxiety or frustration or whatever it is, sadness. Um, but eventually I can get myself to relax, accept and just say, you know what, this is just what is. Mm -hmm. But whatever that was like a week and a half ago or whenever this first started for me, I just was angry all weekend and felt so much resistance, even somatically in my body. I could just feel this tension. And I was like, hmm. okay, <laughs> like this is, I don't usually have this amount, but I'm also, I mean, it was also, you know, a pretty severe episode of, of this kind of health crashing for me. So um, I was like, okay, well, good reminder that like, everything is grace and that I can't ever, you know, be like, yes, and now I've got my life together, um, right. which it's easy to live in that charade, I think, when when life is going well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is a charade because, right, this life is going to end at some point and our health will fail us, like fundamentally, right, one day. Um, and it is, it's so easy to forget that. I mean, the life, our culture doesn't remind us. In fact, it reminds us almost the other thing, uh, or the, it goes the other way and, you know, convincing us that we are young and, or should be young forever. Um, and I, you know, even t this morning, I had the same, I'm not sad because I'm confused about what I should do or, or even sad that my, you know, the family is gone, even though just for a few days. What I'm really sad about is the fact that I have to take up everything in this life one day. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. right so it brings up a much deeper existential spiritual sort of um, uh, grief really 
Yes. Right. That and and in some ways, as a believer, you know, and, and somebody who believes in the resurrection and and who believes that right that God will make all things new, um, you know, even even me has still I have to still grapple right with the passage that life takes us through as it takes us through death. Nobody escapes, um, and it's so easy, you know, to forget that that is still what's in front of us. And and yet, right, we still have hope, you know, that that it's through that process that. Um, you know, that what's good and true and beautiful will, will be resurrected and that the tears will be wiped away and all pain and sign and sorrow will be, will, you know, will have flown away. But, but that's, that's then here is we have to deal with, you know, whether it's our health failing us or friends and family gone, or like you said before, with people within, you know, going through transitions in life, empty nesting, retirement, mm -hmm. uh, children moving out, all of that, right? I mean, every day we have something in front of us that's changing. Um, and if we're too tightly wound, you know, and holding on to what we thought we had or what we currently think about, then we're not open, right, to what's happening in front of us. And um, and I think that is right. Acceptance, you know, for, like you said, with 12 steps, it's, that's definitely the first phase, I think, of responding and respecting that that moment when it comes to us is, well, there's maybe there's something I can do about it and maybe not. So I have to have serenity over the things that I can change and to change the things I can and the threat, you know. Easier said than done. Seriously, that discerning between those two, you know, like what what do I have like power over? What can I influence? And what do I just need to let go of? Because um, speaking for myself with illness, you know, it's it's tricky for me sometimes to distinguish like when am I trying to push too hard, you know, in like researching mm. different like whatever, just health conditions and doctors and approaches and all of that stuff. And when do I just need to accept that this is the condition that I have? And I find sometimes I pendulum swing, you know, mm -hmm. like for the past two years, I've mostly just been in like, well, I'll just accept. And then I have a part in me that, you know, kind of rises up and is like, well, let's get angry. So she at least has energy to do something <laughs> about it. You know, <laughs> like now let's find some doctors to freaking <laughs> change this, you know? Um, but there, there can be such a fixation on, um, I mean, whatever our attachment is, but I, I'm thinking of one good friend of mine who um, originally introduced me to the 12 steps. And she's like, you need to stop focusing on being fixed. F-I-X-T fixed. <laughs> you know? I was like, yeah, yeah, well I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because maybe being broken is what you need right now, right? Totally. Uh, I think I think that line I think of that line where Jesus said, you know, who who are you to call like who are you calling good? Only God is good, right? And of course, He was God, but but the point of that right was to teach us that our our instinct or our initial thought about what whether something's good or bad, and that kind of dualism way of seeing things is usually mistaken, because. It, well, good based on what my personal preferences of the, at the moment that are probably rather transitory and and probably self-centered um and even if they're noble right it is it who am i to really make that that determination yeah uh, but at the same time right we know that like especially when it comes to our bodily health for sure i mean that's like the the final frontier um is that of course it's a good thing to be healthy and and a not good thing to be sick right i mean that's just that's an obvious truism of just life um but our life is not just our body. And I think that's where then, right. Then we have the paradox of you want to care for yourself as if you're somebody worth caring for. Right. And you treat your body with respect and you try to make it better. Right. With remedies and doctors and protocols and whatever. Right. But at some point, you know, 
or maybe throughout that entire process, you you have a, a conscious awareness of the fact that, you know, this particular manifestation is is passing away. And at the end, no doctor, no medicine, nothing will save you. Right. Um, so to live in that ambiguity of those two spaces of I'm going to honor and cherish something that I know is going to die. I mean, and that I think is in really in many ways the noble calling of our life. Right. Is to knowing full well. Right. And, and, and th- I think that also ties into maybe our roles, too, especially with important roles like father, mother or, um, or, you know, child or whatever, is that to be, to take that calling on is to, in some ways, know that it's going to end mm. and, to, and to do it anyway. Right. As, and particularly, I think as a parent um, and, and maybe even a mother, most particularly is to bring something of life into the world, knowing full well that it's going to die. I mean, it puts you right at the heart of kind of Marian sort of a Marian vision of the world, um, if you will, from a Catholic point of view, right. Of the sword that goes through your heart is to know that your son is going to die. Um, and, but the bravery that it takes, right, to still do the right thing, to still take care of this body, let's say, that is falling apart, um, and to treat it with respect the entire way is, um, well, I think it's also what makes us, um, it is so inspiring when you watch somebody go through an illness or or go through death, right, with maintaining that sense of deep serenity. I mean, they may be suffering terribly in many cases, but there's something of the human person that is within the body, but also in many ways does transcend it. Yeah, yeah. I know. I love um, how Julian of Norwich calls it being supple, you know, and I think mm. that's such a great <laughs> embodied beautiful. word for it, you know, but it it's so hard, <laughs> you know. Yeah, easier said than done. I And it's funny, I, I've had this happen so many times in life, and I'm guessing you have too, and probably people listening, where you you almost get used to like a certain level of, of trust and surrender and acceptance, you know, where you're like, okay, I'm starting to get used to this. Like, this isn't so bad. And then all of a sudden it's like you plunk down to the next level and you're like, mm-hmm. you know, like I just can't handle this, you know, which is kind of the whole point, you know, right. to make sure you're not depending on yourself. Yeah. And um, I know I mentioned to you before this Ruth Burroughs, who I've been reading more of, we're doing right. yeah, a class on her and women mystics coming up. And just some of her quotes have just been k- kicking me <laughs> in the butt so bad. I just, I need to share a couple of yes, these with please you. Do. Okay, let me, here, I'll put this in the chat so you can see this. Um, okay, so Ruth says... And this is a, a Carmelite who's like 99 years old living in England. And she, it, it, she's just mind blowing. She says, she speaks of spiritual poverty so just plainly and lucidly that I'm like, what, what do I have left to say? Like Ruth Burroughs has already <laughs> said it all. And I know like Rowan Williams is like a huge fan. He asked her to write more books because he was so changed by her first book that he read like 40 years ago and um, sister Wendy of BBC, you know, the art, art nun um, Mm -hmm. claimed that Ruth Burroughs should be amongst like Teresa of Avila and Hildegard and all the greats. And so she's very highly spoken of um, and I love her. (laughs) So (laughs) she says, God is always working to bring us to an awareness and an acceptance of our poverty which is the essential condition of our being able to receive him, which that much already, the fact that our poverty and just our messiness is an Mm -hmm. essential condition of being able to receive God. Like, I feel like that's so much of what I was trying to express when I wrote spiritual wanderlust, Mm -hmm. you know, was like that cavity that we have inside. That's so 
Ugh. <laughs> like there's so much it can feel like angst it can feel like yearning it can feel like distress and crisis or whatever but it hurts you know you just mm-hmm. realize like i can do nothing and but that's that's exactly the space that the divine needs to pour himself out yeah you know that's exactly and, right yeah so she goes on to say ruth says The petty frustrations, the restrictions, humiliations, the occasions when we are made to feel poignantly and distressingly hedged around, not in control of the world, not even in control of that tiny corner of it we are supposed to call our own, are his chosen channel into the soul. Like, all of those difficult, painful, uncomfortable things are God's chosen channel. Yeah. That's so beautiful. And it's so reassuring, too, I think, for me. To hear that, right? To remember that the, yeah, like the petty frustration, even the petty frustrations, right? There are all of these incredible opportunities, right? To accept our poverty, accept the fact that we're not God and we're not in control of practically almost anything, which is, I think, why the first step of the 12 step programs is so incredible because the, you know, the acceptance of powerlessness is the, is the spiritual foundation upon which almost everything has to come from. And we don't I, want that. But we don't want that, right? I don't want that. You know? <laughs> like, I don't want to be powerless over my illness. Like, No, oy. it's a very painful place to be. Yes, it is. And it's, it's so good. Ruth, let me just share one more quote. Yeah. Ruth goes on to say, it is born in on me more as the years go by how profound is this theme of human helplessness and our loving acceptance of it it is truly mystical Hmm. human helplessness and our loving acceptance of it is truly mystical like thank you ruth like i feel like i spend so much time trying to um help others and oftentimes myself (laughs) understand that like the mystical life, contemplation, divine union is not about all of the wonderful feelings of peace and closeness to God. And those can be wonderful and they could be a part of it. But Ruth goes on to say, like, if you can feel it, it's not a mystical grace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it happens in the darkness and it's in our helplessness and our poverty that that happens. That's where the transformation happens. And I don't think any of us want to hear that. <laughs> no. No, well, you shouldn't want to hear it. That's for sure. It's a hard, it's a hard message, right? And I think I think of all the times that people turned away from Jesus during his ministry. You know, the scripture says it because he was saying he had a hard saying, right? And I think and these are this is a perfect example of you know, um, yeah, it's a truth that nobody likes. Um, but I, I I love the the word that uh, clarified or that was added to in terms of acceptance, right? It's not just acceptance. It's not re- resignation. It's not just uh, mm-hmm. apathy, right. Or right. It's loving acceptance. Yes. And I love that, right. The energy of that, which is that like the God as love, right. Invites us to love what is right. And then works with us in that. And so as we find ways, right. To lovingly accept, not just accept, but lovingly yes. um, the poverty, we realize that, um, you know, like St. Paul said, like I, I, you know, I'm content in my weaknesses and I'm actually boasting in them because I'm, they're the portal. They're the, they're the, um, the point at which, right, the, the divine union happens. And it can be no other way because God has to meet us where he's uh, able to participate with us. And he can't, he's not going to participate or can't participate with us in areas where we've decided we're already in charge. So mm. our poverty is it. That's that's the doorway. Yes, I know. That's another reason I've, I've kind of had this renewed 
love for Therese of Lisieux, um, who was my, I chose her as my confirmation saint. She was like one of my first favorite saints that I really enjoyed, the little flower. Um, but then at, when I was in the convent in Rome, I kind of grew in this distaste for her because she's she's mm. very flowery language, you know? Yeah. And I was like, this is a little like sappy. It's kind of saccharine, <laughs> you know, almost too sweet. We were like, ooh. Um, but if you, if you consider the heart of her message, Therese and, you know, again, she, she influences so many of the modern mystics from, you know, from Ruth Burroughs herself to Dorothy Day to, I mean, Mother Teresa took her name after her, not after Teresa of Avila. Um, and, but just her, her ability to recognize that it's, it's in the littleness, in our littleness, in our poverty, in our, our very nothingness that we present to God. You know, when we realize that we are powerless, that's this profound gift that we can mm -hmm. give to divine mystery. And that's all he really wants from us, you know, is to offer up our littleness. Yeah. And I don't, yeah, that all we need to do is allow God to love us in that. Like, that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> hard to do, though. It is so hard freaking hard. <laughs> I... I always I... have to hold my breath just a little bit um, when people start talking about the dark night of the soul kind of, you know, just offhandedly, because I'm like, careful, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. that's a really difficult transition. And John of the Cross is talking about something very specific there. But I mean, just the cross in general, you know, when I thought I knew what suffering was, and I thought I knew like how to carry my cross and, you know, all those wonderful kind of terms that we couch it in, at least in Christianity. And mm -hmm. then when my life fell apart, I was like, hell no. <laughs> like right. I had no idea what yeah. this was. All, all those about. concepts become just words at that point. They're yeah. They're revealed for the emptiness that they probably were all along, right? Because to your point, right? If you feel good about them, you're <laughs> there's probably something that you're missing. But on the other hand, right, it's also not it's not a reason to despair as well, right? Um there's a saying in the Eastern Orthodox Church um, from one of the more modern saints, he said, keep your uh, keep your mind in hell, but despair not. Hmm. And that's a tricky one, right, to parse through. But the, the point essentially that he was making is that the Christian life is a is a paradox of the life, right? It's you have to stay engaged with reality and reality in this life in many ways for most of the time for most people is rather hellish. And most of us, particularly those of us living in, in relative comfort, have no idea, right? Yeah. We really have no idea how bad, how bad, you know, life can get, at least on paper. Um, but at the same time, the admonition is not to despair, right? Because this is not the end. And, and not, not only is this not the end in terms of the future, but the loving acceptance, like you said, right? Or mm -hmm. uh, is the, is the, is an incredible mystical portal in many ways into um, not escaping from the suffering necessarily, but transforming it from within, right? Mm -hmm. And it becomes a point at which then God then it d d does, you know, come and comfort us. Um, and he may comfort us by removing some of the, the thorns in our side. You know, maybe he takes away the most immediate pressing issue, um, but or, or not, right? And I think a lot too of like the um, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the three holy youth story, right? Where they tell the king, like, look, we worship a God who we know could remove us from your presence and could save us from your you know, uh, totalitarian impulses. Um, but even if he doesn't, that's not going to change our devotion to him. And we are not going to do things that we know are wrong. Right? We're not going to speak lies into the world. We're not going to act in ways that violate our conscience um, and that hurt the people around us. 
And so whatever comes to us is something that I, we are going to lovingly accept, essentially. Right. And then, of course, in that story, you know, a miraculous, you know, uh, series of events happen. But sometimes it doesn't. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. And many times it doesn't. At least, you know, we hear a lot about miraculous stories and, you know, that, you know, glory to God for those. Right. But many, many times we're not always immediately relieved of the things that are tormenting us or the ways in which we're tormenting ourselves. <laughs> right. Which is what's usually going on. Um, but um, but it doesn't matter. Right. Either way, there's um, there's grace to be had because there's lessons for us in that. And I think the fundamental lesson probably always is um, the poverty of true humility, which is to to say yes to God, even if I don't understand, even if I don't like this right now, even if I think it's bad, uh, maybe even if it is bad, right, um, is to say into your hands, I commit my spirit. And, you know, we're I think was though sometimes as believers, we underestimate the power of that. And we see it all around us, or we could see it if we opened our eyes, that there are people all around us bearing unbelievable crosses. I mean, you know, your health story, I mean, every, if you dig just, you know, if you go get past small talk and you can talk to somebody for five minutes about what's really going on in their life, inevitably, right, they either have some personal, they have some personal catastrophe that's happening to them, their own physical health, the physical health of loved ones, job loss, and particularly these days and over the past years, I mean, the suffering of the world has multiplied exponentially to the point that it's almost breathtaking. And, um, and so anyway, for me, I'm just, um, in awe, I think of the work that people are doing to keep themselves together and to keep their families together and to, um, and I think it's, it's a temptation, right. To despair, right. To despair instead of being willing to trust that God will save us in the end. Hmm. And it might be today. It might be 10 years from now and it might be on the next, in, you know, in the next life, but his mercy never fails and his love is his love does triumph. Um, yeah. and, it, and it starts now. That's the other thing. It isn't just at the end that lovingly accepting our poverty really does bear fruit. Even if you don't see it, maybe God's hiding it from you, um, maybe to protect you a little bit so that you don't get too puffed up. But like those prayers don't go unanswered. Um, but it sure is hard when we're on this side of it to see that. Sometimes. For sure. I know that's, yeah, the painful part is when we are left in darkness, not feeling anything. And I mean, even just thinking of, of Ruth Burroughs again, she talks about how um, like she has this one kind of powerful experience when she's like 17 or 18 of God and then never again. She like entered yeah. Carmel and she's like, I have been in darkness my entire life. She's like, wow. you asked me if I love God? Like, I don't know if I can say that I love him because I feel like love is a feeling and I have no feelings whatsoever. Like it's been... But I trust him with like the depth of everything that I am, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just crazy how those things can coexist, um, you know, and she's she talks about this profound, like deep black depression that she struggled with throughout her life. And yet how coexisting with that is this profound trust that she has and knows that because of how how weak and poor she feels just because of her own constitution and what she's been given, you know, she's like all the more so God has space to pour himself out, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's, I think where that littleness, that poverty um, can become such a, a gift. Right. Yeah. And it's fueled probably by that, by gratitude. Mm. Right. That um, I know for me personally, like when I start to feel like my, my tank is empty, mm -hmm. right? Or my capacity to continue to endure something is 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 waning. Um, 
it's it's refilled with with gratitude mm. and not the cheap gratitude of just the quick thanks or whatever but really sitting and dwelling and thinking and not so much even in comparing of like well, well it could be worse you know sure. i mean that's one that's a that's one that's a cheap form of gratitude yeah. um not totally un, un, unusable but but gratitude just in a sense of whatever is is and there's something profound about just sitting with it Right. And, and, and then again, those distinctions between what is good and bad start to evaporate a little bit or they become less important because, mm-hmm. right. The gratitude itself is what is then the only thing that matters um, because it's, it's um, well, so much more peaceful to accept things as they are. Yes. And I tell people, oh yeah, go ahead. No, I was just, I was just going to say that it, it takes some serious retraining of your brain and how you respond because our knee jerk reaction is, you know, like, oh, I was planning on going camping this weekend and now it's raining or I'm sick or I, you know, whatever the thing is. And we get angry and frustrated instead of like, oh, okay, well, so mm-hmm. if that's what like divine mystery wanted for me, then what, what am I called to do with this weekend? You know, to have that right. kind of unperturbed spirit. If I don't know, it's like when you don't have that example around you and somebody to model that for you, it's, it's almost hard to wrap your mind around. For sure. And, you know, personally, I would say, um, I have been so inspired by, by 12 step program people, because for me, like I probably seen that type of spiritual maturity there more than anywhere else. Mm. You know, these are people who have learned the hard way that the alternative to that is resentment and, you know, drinking and death. Like, yeah. and I think that's one of the things too, is that like the deeper you go into the poverty of your life, wherever it happens to be, wherever your weaknesses are and your addiction your character defects, right? If you, if you pay attention to them, you'll see that they're caused mayhem in your life and it's chaos. Um, And then if you get a little bit afraid of that, right. And I think, you know, what you said at the beginning, like it maybe I don't know, maybe it's anger, but maybe it's fear, Hmm. right? It's, it's being afraid. And, and if you're afraid of the right things, then all of a sudden, right. Pivoting into a spirit, whether it's a spirit of Thanksgiving or loving acceptance of the poverty of the current moment. um, It, it, it still is hard, but it sure is. It sure beats the alternative. <laughs> mm. And, you know, and I, you know, I've worked with people all the time who talk about how they essentially in, in recovery, they reoriented their entire mental framework around avoiding resentment. And then that's how they started. And then they, at some point they pivoted to not just avoiding resentment, but accepting the resentment itself even. Right. And then, yes. and then you're free at that point, you're free because, and I do think from a, again, from a recovery point of view, the, um, you know, the impulse to drink, let's say that tortures people who are, who are addicts, um, it is lifted. And that's actually how it's lifted mm-hmm. is that you've actually stopped fighting it. Now mm-hmm. you've accepted the temptation, let's say to drink as another friend that's trying to teach you something about the poverty of your life that you need to accept. And as long as you stay in that kind of rhythm, then all of a sudden, right. Now it doesn't mean, I mean, the work is brutal and it's very, and sometimes it's harder than just giving in. Right. And that's where we see people relapse because it's very, very difficult to stay in that, in that fight. But again, but it's also way worse to relapse as most people will tell you who have. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you do that long enough, eventually, you know, it teaches you like no matter how hard it is to stay in a loving and a loving stance of embracing whatever it is that God has for you is way better. It's a way better way to live than, right than anything else essentially yeah yeah i i just think of how for those of us who don't have the more obvious addictions you know to like substances and things um i would say almost 
everyone has an addiction to control, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just the need to, I mean, yeah, yep. don't we all? I mean, isn't that basically what an attachment is? Like, no, I want it my way, not whatever yep. way it's unfolding in reality. <laughs> and how difficult that is to catch ourselves in that moment. And I remember talking to um, someone who, an alcoholic once who was saying like, I mean, he was still kind of in the midst of things in the beginning of recovery, but he was like, I'm still trying to identify even what my triggers are. Like, it's just mm -hmm. all of a sudden I have a beer in my hand, right. you know, and to, to see what brings us to that point, like what brings us to the point where we're snapping at our spouse or trying, like worry is usually an indication that we're trying to control something in the future. <laughs> you know, it's just anxiety. Our, our insides don't know what to do with all of that energy. So we're like, let me just see if I can fix it in my brain. And we fixate on it. And, and it's, it's almost like a form of attempting to control, but uh, yeah, catching ourselves in the act, I feel like is such a key moment for all of that. I mean, did you discover that in, in your own work or how was that for you? Oh, definitely. And in, even in, you know, from an, uh, from an Orthodox Christian point of view, the, the the work that we're called to do in many ways is to slow down that process mm. right is that because you know the the act of, let's say of doing something evil or, or wrong is just is the end that's the last thing that happens and in some cases right it has the most direct impact on your life usually uh, right and i think that's also why from you know in, in many circles um simplistically right the spiritual life has devolved into just essentially behavioral, you know, um, modification, just of that last point, right? Don't so do the, don't do the naughty things. Yeah. Right. And, you know, fair enough. Right. We don't want to do those things that like, I'm not knocking that. Right. Sure. But it's, but it's such a betrayal of the process because you're not going, and, and this is again, from a, a recovery point of view, by the time you have the beer in your hand and it's up to your lips, you're done. It, like it's over. You're not going to stop at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and so the work that you have to do in recovery, and I think the work that you have to do in the spiritual life is to back up is to figure out, like you said, where are the trigger points? What was I thinking about 10 minutes before I did that, right? And eventually, if you really do all that work, you're you're going back pretty far, usually, right? You have triggers that go way, way, way back. Um, but but inevitably, a lot of the work that you have to do is usually within like a, let's say, seven-day period. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, so, but that's hard. It's really hard to, to be awake, to think, well, I, I, I had a thought that came to me and having thoughts isn't bad. They come to everybody, right? And, you know, you're, if you're doing your work, you let them pass through. You lovingly accept them, you notice them, and then they're gone, right? And you only act on the ones that you've already decided, right, to give uh, your consent to. But if that thought comes in and it starts to tempt you, then there's a whole sequence of spiritual things that begin to happen, right? You you bring, like with Cain, right? God said, well, you, you brought this in like a ravening wolf you, you wanted to have relations essentially with this and then that's what carried you to, to murder um, but if we if we're, we're paying attention to what's going on inside of us and we're feeling those feelings and letting them be what they are right then okay then you notice i'm afraid i'm angry whatever that right and you get better at differentiating those emotional states it's not just you know uh happy angry and pissed off you know, most people think it's I just have three emotions and those are the ones it's like, right. right. There's a whole, you have hope, you have despair, you have longing, you have yes. embarrassment, you have, right. You, you have to figure out what's happening. To me. Um, and then, and then to do that, then once you do that, you figure out what the right course of action is, right. Maybe I need to bat. Maybe I need to stay silent. Maybe I need to tell someone something. Maybe I need to call my sponsor. Maybe I need to go to church. Maybe I need to eat something. You know, sometimes like the funny thing too, like from a spiritual point of view, we think that the thing, like I need to go on a pilgrimage. I need to pray for something. Maybe who's you're allergic to yesterday, 
you know, or whatever, you know, Seriously. it can be a real simple thing, but that's humiliating to admit, I think, particularly for spiritual people to that our life, especially in an embodied world, right. Is that we're, we have so many things that are going on. And sometimes the answer is much simpler than we'd like it to be. I remember seeing like a, I think it was a meme or something that said like, you know, if you're having a rough day, like, you know, basically to ask yourself, have I had enough water? Have I had enough sunlight? Have I had enough to eat? Like, you're basically a plant with complicated emotions. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. In AA, we call that halt. Yes. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can be, for the addict, if you're, you can be one of those four and you're starting to already be on a bad slope. Two out of four, you're in big trouble. And you're probably, you're already moving in a, in a direction that's going to end up in catastrophe. And three out of four, if you're not doing something immediately, then it, yeah, it's over. And mm -hmm. for like, yeah, forget about it. So, yeah. Right. And so again, that takes, there's a certain level of um, uh, maintenance and, and discipline to stay conscious and aware. And I think, again, going back to what you said about poverty, there's nothing more poverty uh, inducing than to constantly be realizing that, yeah, I'm almost always at least hungry, angry, lonely, or tired all the time. And that means that I have to be awake all the time to being right, to being asking for help from, from, uh, from God or your higher power, if you're in recovery. Um, right. And so, to, and then that puts you in a place of, I'm always in need and I, I right. I need help in not falling into yes. one of these states. Um, but again, I think too, you know, at the, especially at the beginning, when you really get into this, it's hard, but eventually God provides all kinds of help. And that help comes in the form of, you know, spiritual teachers and recovery programs and churches and friends. And, and even just internally, you start to develop some muscle, right? So that even if you fall, you rebound much quicker because you, you have that faith and that trust and that love, maybe just trust like your friend, maybe it isn't like love, but at least it's trust. Right. And you know that God's there to pick you back up and that you're forgiven and that learning what you need to learn from falling is actually critically important so that you don't fall next time. And then again, that goes back to that good and bad sort of distinction is that even, a, you know, and even in recovery, you know, we have people who relapse. It's like, good. Like, first of all, you're not dead. So that's good. And if you're not in prison, that's probably good too. But, and so you're here, you're back. And now you have something you've gone to the you've gone somewhere that you have something now that you've learned that maybe you can share with the rest of us of why you got there. Right. And I think, again, from a recovery perspective and whether that's in churches or, or in, you know, 12 step meetings, the sharing of the what we've learned in the journey, both the quote good and the mm -hmm. bad, both of them are equally amazing, because if you hear people's stories of, hey, I, you know, like God really saved me and I did some good work and things are working out better. It's like, hooray. Good. That's a good story. Or. I wasn't doing my work and I wasn't paying attention and I started making bad choices and then this happened. Well, that's instructive and helpful for all of us too. So there's, in some ways there is no good or evil. It's just all good. <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Yes. And it's hard to receive all of that as such. Yes. But I, I love the, I mean, I'm so glad emotional intelligence has started to take off in you know, business world and things like that, because just starting to have a basic level of that emotional awareness. And like you said, slowing down the reaction, you know, so mm -hmm. when whatever my, um, I don't know, sister says something kind of flippant and my initial reaction is like, what did she say to me? <laughs> you know, or actually for me, I often have like a slower response at first. I'm like, and I have some sort of like people pleasing response. And then it's sure. later that I'm like, what did she say? I think I'm offended. Like, I can't believe she said that to me, you know, whatever, you know, things start kind of tumbling out, but yep. to catch myself in the act of like, okay, which is one of the reasons why I love IFS, like internal mm -hmm. family systems and doing parts work because I can so pause great. and just say, 
like, okay, what, what part is speaking right here? And okay, hey, I see you're really upset. Do you want to tell me why you're upset? You know, and it's, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like talking to a child who's, you know, mm-hmm. throwing a tantrum. Like, if you can stay in your adult mind and your deepest self, instead of getting yanked into, you know, all of the, the mess and the, the drama or the um, just anger, all of the things that, you know, your child might be feeling, if you can stay at least a few inches away from that and just say, Hey buddy, like what's mm-hmm. going on? It sounds like you're really upset about something. Do you want to tell me about it? <laughs> you right, know? Or right. like, do, should we maybe go grab a snack and then we can talk about, you know, <laughs> whatever. <Yeah. laughs> like. Well, and if you, if you have protectors from an IFS perspective who are particularly well-developed, that gets tricky because right. Like you said, you, if you have people pleasing skills or if you have, you know, a protector that's sophisticated in its uh, approach, you might not feel bad for two days or a week from now, right? Mm-hmm. And so that discontent that you're feeling on Tuesday might be from something that happened yes. last Saturday it, that you're that is just now finally kind of being allowed to bubble up into your consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the importance of really, uh, right, of whatever you need to slow down and to do that kind of level of work, whether that's with someone else, journaling, prayer. I mean, there's so many different tools, right? Mm-hmm. But to figure out, you know, am I just reacting to something that happened five seconds ago or is it? Is it way, how old, like, what's the story of this situation? Yes, Um, yes. And then who would I be without that story, right? That's Mm -hmm. such an important question of, okay, I'm feeling this right now and I need to accept that. But then being curious enough, and I think curiosity is such an uh, uh, underdeveloped and and underappreciated sort of uh, uh, tool, I think, in our tool belt is, right, is is to, like you said, like, look that child in the eyes and want to know, like, I want to hear from you what you're feeling and what you need and what you want and what, right. Um, because I think, again, it, all of that is not just information. It's, it's a relationship, mm-hmm. right. Union. And I think you talk about divine union. I mean, that's, I think that's where it's at is the divine union is not just us as some monolithic entity and then God as some other better entity or whatever. Right. It's, yeah. it's much deeper. It's, it's the realization that that union is so, is so deep right it's within us in in ways that we don't even really understand but curiosity is our way of saying yes to that it's by right we offer our attention our interest our capacity in that moment and it might be small but you know god works with what with what we offer the two loaves and five fishes Mm -hmm. good enough Mm -hmm. always good enough i know and and the mess that we have inside you know i mean some of those ifs images that i like to use of like union for me is when you're able to have your deepest self, you know, where you're one with the divine, that is the orchestra conductor and all of the instruments, all of your different parts, like your people pleasing parts, your ones that tend to control, the ones that, you know, are really good and empathetic and listening. And, you know, all of them get to play the parts that they're meant to play instead of like the strings staging like this coup d'etat, you know, and like, (laughs) we're taking over. And you're like, whoa, hey, but the woodwinds, like they still need to, you know, (laughs) like, you know, so everybody can just play their part at the appropriate time. And sometimes you need that conductor to be like, oh, shh. You know, mm-hmm. like I need a little less from, you know, the bassoons over here. You guys are kind of taking over <laughs> like a little stronger over there from whatever the flutes. Um, and so that to me is like just is such a helpful image for for the interior life, because we tend to have so many different voices in conflict with one another, mm-hmm. you know, and 
especially with with illness, I had so many parts coming up, you know, that last weekend when I was, you know, I was angry. And then I was like ashamed that I was angry. And then I was like, well, why am I ashamed? I'm ashamed that I'm ashamed. And, you know, and then I'm sad. And I'm like grieving because this is where I am, you know, and just and then another part of me can still look outside and see that there's a blue sky and like, but we should be happy. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's so much <laughs> happening internally right now. Like, Oh, man. Yeah, it's and but I'm just thinking of what you said before, like being able to come to that place of accepting even your resentment, you mm -hmm. know, and I think for any of those parts that we have inside that we don't really particularly like our responses or how, you know, controlling we are or whatever it is, whatever part or character mm -hmm. defect or f tendency that we have. But if we can come to the place of embracing even that, I mean, I had to write, I put a piece of paper on my wall last week that said, I accept that I cannot accept my chronic illness. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I have to remind myself of this multiple times a day. Like, this is just where I am. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Well, and sometimes there's, there's reasons sometimes not to not to accept certain things you know sure. we do we do have to have boundaries and some things are are objectively not what they could or should be mm -hmm. and i think right i think a lot of i know like for me particularly when i was you know before i was in recovery um that was super hard for me to that i couldn't i didn't want to accept that i actually had legitimate like complaints because mm. if I accepted that I had a legitimate complaint, against me, it, 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 I, it like pitted me against God fundamentally in a weird way. Right? Um, but it also then called forth something from me, a responsibility, usually to have boundaries, mm. <laughs> right? And to actually say what I need or what I want or what I think without... Can you give an example of that? Oh, boy. Um, probably in re just relationships in general, mm. I would say. Um you know, I'm I'm a, a, a like a one on the enneagram with a nine wing. So any talk about harmony is like, tickles my you know like I love that because um, you know having peace <laughs> and and connection and harmony is definitely something that drives kind of my the one in me that mm. wants to be right and the, what I want to be right about is the fact that peace is really worth fighting for. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. And um, but you know, not everyone's like that, mm. or not everyone believes that, or not everyone not everyone even sees that, and so. Um, so for me, it would be in, in realizing that, well, that's something worth, like, that's not worth sacrificing, mm. right? Um, there's a lot of work to be done to achieve that or to move in that direction, right? It's not easy and it's a lot easier to talk about it than to do it. But, um, it's, it made me resentful that mm. to, to somehow sacrifice who I was or to not be willing to say what I wanted. Uh, and so one of the things I had to do in recovery was to, was to realize I had to be a little braver about, you know, putting myself out into the world and risk being rejected, even on the merits, let's say. Because mm. um, it's a, it's easy to be resentful about something that you know is wrong. It's a lot easier to be resentful about something that you know is right. You know, I mean, and it's one of the things in relationships. It's like, if you want to hurt somebody, you punish them for their vices. But if you really want to torture them, you punish them for their virtues. Mm. Right. And, but, but you can, in a relationship, you allow yourself to be punished if you don't have boundaries. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you can, and so it's one thing to take admonishment for something from someone, right? For something that you know is wrong. That that's just like again, back to humility, right? We should all, all be willing to accept correction, but mm. right, but to accept being attacked, and and I think right, it's hard sometimes to tell the difference, particularly if you're a people pleaser or you want peace. It's very easy to just say, well, I'll just 
do all, you know, I'll collapse in on myself or I'll do this thing that doesn't really, you know, work for me. Uh, but then again, like I said, that just breeds resentment and resentment is an absolute poison it really and it's not is. worth it. It just literally is not worth it. And it's also not, if you, you know, from a Christian point of view, it's not how Jesus was, you know, he was all the things. And when, when mercy was called for and compassion, that's what he gave. And when it was strength and courage and having a boundary and saying the truth, that's what he did. Right. Um, and so again, it's super inspiring. I think in some ways is to realize that whatever it's like from an, from like an Enneagram perspective, you're going to come into the world with a certain worldview and a certain set of gifts, but in some ways learning to develop the beauty and the gifts of all the other types and practicing, right. Trying to be more of a helper, like a two, um, or stronger, like an eight, let's say is it's an incredible adventure to try to do that. Um, and again, I think, you know, in recovery, that's one of the things you know, we don't talk about it, maybe necessarily from an Enneagram perspective, but that's the same kind of work is that whatever your character defects are, as you really begin to explore them as the, the root cause of why, let's say you're an addict, it's in many ways, it's a lack of engagement and curiosity with, right. Mm. The development that you're called to, and that is the adventure of your life if you're willing to accept it. Um, but it's, it's, you know, the easy route is to just avoid that or to hide from it or, yeah. or to find short. Hang on. I want to back up and say like highlight yeah. what you just said there. So basically your tendencies towards addictions are often induced by, let's say like your weakest Enneagram or like the places where you are not as um, well-rounded, let's say. Yep. I, I think so. I think from what I've seen, I think that's a pretty, I mean, it's not a perfect thing. I mean, there's always complicated, but I would say for sure. That's yeah. a good place to start is. Yeah. That's, I mean, because, yep. huge. <laughs> You know, I, I um, had someone on the podcast, um, maybe it was last year already, um, Dr. Jerome Lubb, who does like neuroscience and Enneagram. And he was talking about the importance of knowing your lowest numbers for that reason. And he yep. gave this analogy of, you know, everybody's got to be able to fly the plane. You know, you have like one or two numbers that you're used to, you know, <laughs> being in the in the pilot seat. But everybody's got, you know, sometimes you get your eight thrown in the pilot seat and if they've never flown before, yeah, you totally are like, I don't know how to do this. And, you know, mm -hmm. get really stressed out and the whole system's freaking out, you know? And so you got to learn like, okay, so maybe we got to take this eight for like a test drive somewhere, you know, <laughs> to practice in a lower stakes situation so that when it does become difficult, you know, if I can stand up to my sister, it'll be a lot easier to stand up to, you know, the bully at work or you know, whatever yep. it is, or the guy who keeps on making inappropriate comments and nobody says anything or, you know, whatever the situation is. But those are hard. Those are really yeah. hard. Very, very hard. And there's a balance too, that I think you have to strike. Um, and I've done this a lot in the work environment where, you know, at some places there's a real focus on, you know, weakness, dealing with your weaknesses, trying to fix them and all that. One of the things I found, is, especially in the work world, is um, it's way better and more effective and quite frankly, more uh, fun to just focus on people's strengths and amplifying them, mm -hmm. right? And so you get both sides, right? Of like, you have to protect your weak side, um, but you also have to run towards something. And that was kind of like what I was saying before about you have to be afraid of the right things and then in love with, or at least interested in the right things. And if you can balance those, right, then then you have something that's that's not going to get unstable. Because if you're just afraid of protecting your flank, right, you're going to lose interest or you're going to lose uh, hope maybe even. Mm. Um, or if you're just focused on your strengths, right, you're going to get take, something's going to cut you off at the knees at some point, right, um, because you're not paying enough attention. Um, so it takes, it's kind of a multi 
factored sort of approach that has to be done. Yeah. Can you think of an example of something like that where focusing on, I don't know, both your strengths and your weaknesses, essentially? Like, what does that look like? <clears throat> like in the work world or, or sure, anywhere? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, like in the work world, um, there are, there are people who are very, very detail oriented, right? And, and the other thing too, is that like, usually your strength and your weaknesses are the same thing. They're just sure. really manifested. And that's, this is probably a good example of that being super detail oriented is great. Right. But it also hinders you from being a strategic thinker usually. Mm. Um, and it also might prevent you from being more personable, let's say. Um, and so, right. So you have to figure out what's, and it's not a balancing act necessarily. It's if you're detail oriented then find work that, that rewards detail-oriented activities, right? Accounting, let's say. Um, and and then your weaknesses, let's say, maybe you're not as personable. Maybe you're more of an introvert and you like the numbers thing. Well, then do that work. And then your weaknesses in some ways are mitigated by the environment because mm -hmm. well, you're not going to get called on very often to exhibit extraordinary feats of extroversion and you know salesmanship, let's say. Um, sure. So in the work world, it's a little easier because it's more bounded. Uh, but in the spiritual life, obviously, it's it's much more complicated because, well, that's everything. It's not just work. Uh, but the, I think the same principle applies, which is, you know, pursue with curiosity and passion the things that interest you. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the time, we don't really do that because we're afraid or we're embarrassed or we don't know. Right. It's a bunch of things. Um, but also, we need to run away from things that we know are our weaknesses. And in recovery, I mean, that's kind of an easy one, which is like, you know, the, the mantra is you know, go to meetings, get a book, get a sponsor and don't drink. Well, like. <laughs> That's the plan, basically, what I just outlined in much, much simpler format, uh, you know. And But again, that's what the beauty sometimes I think of these things, that we can condense them down. They're much more, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to think about them esoterically. It's There's real practical things that you can do. Um, but that's also why it's so helpful to have somebody to talk to and a community to work with. and Because it's impossible at some point, you know, you can do a lot of work on your own. And you have to do it all. You, you have to do all the work. But you can't, you also can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, I know for me, I, you know, trying to do things alone is usually what got me into a lot of trouble. Um, and I, you know, I have an army of people now that I consult and work with and talk to. And because I just, I realized the problem that I'm facing, which is my ego is, <laughs> it's so large that I need, I can't do it by myself. Mm -hmm. Partly, right. It's I'm fighting in some cases against myself to some degree. But. Right. Right. We try to use our ego to defeat our ego. Right. And that just, yeah, we end up in circles like a dog chasing its tail. Yeah. yeah. But like you said, too, like your ego also is not your enemy, right? Mm -hmm. It's just one of the parts and it's a super critical one and you should never get rid of it. Um, and then, I, you know, it's probably one of the things that eventually kind of drove me out of Buddhism was the realization that the destruction of my ego was, first of all, not possible. <laughs> and second of all, probably not wise because my ego was a part of me that that and still does serve a very critical function. It's a it's a narrow myopic, right. Kind of function. And it has to be bounded and, and broken right, to, to sure. function properly. But the, you know, our egos are incredibly important. And because in some ways there are the, it's the energy of how we bring ourselves into the world. It requires the ego. Yeah. I was going to uh, say the right. ego is the entire symphony. Those are, you know, yeah. in some psychological circles are just called, you know, subpersonalities or ego states, you know? So it's like, oh yeah, my ego knows how to be a people pleaser. My ego knows right. how to be a judgmental critic. My ego knows how to also knows how to serve, you know, I, right. I that was something that, you know, I kind of had a rude awakening to in Rome when I had a spiritual director ask me, I think I had just gotten into the Enneagram over there and, mm. um, I over there I tested as a two because like what nun isn't formed to be a two um, <laughs> sure. and uh, I remember my spiritual director asking me like 
do you like get something out of like serving other people? And I was like, mm. I don't, I don't <laughs> think so. I mean, I think I just genuinely love being able to serve. And he's like, okay. And like six months later, I came back. I was like, oh, I totally do. I feel like a good person. Yeah. And like, it makes me proud that like, you know, yep. this is what I get to, you know, and it was hard to come around to that though. Like, oh, there is ego bound up in that, isn't there? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> one of the things I remember we talked about one time was like, for me, like I love books, right? And I love knowing things. And as a one, I love being right. And I thought for years, early on when I was young, especially in the spiritual life, that that was how you become a spiritual person from my mm. point of view, is that you just become more and more right all the time about everything. And, um, and you know, it's like one of those things, like that's true at a, at a very superficial level, right? What I didn't realize was that being right for me, like to the extent that I want to be right means that I need to be constantly wrong all the time. Mm. That's actually, that's the price you pay for wanting to be right. And so again, like from that sense of like pursuing or trying to become who you are and, and protecting kind of what that means in terms of the weaknesses that you'll bring forward is for me, like I, I had to, and, and I didn't learn this until recovery was I had to be constantly not only aware of, but really like in love with being wrong about things. I had to start liking that process. Mm. You know, obviously I'm going to, it's going to be uncomfortable and painful and all the rest of it. Right. But to understand that, that the more times that you've been wrong about something and come through the other side, right. With some level of wisdom or empathy or whatever it is, right. That you were wrong about that just makes you better at being right the next time. Mm. And at some point, right. It, it, you start to realize it's not about being right anymore at all. It's just about being loving. Yes. <laughs> um, right. But that requires, again, that sort of engagement with the shadow part. Of whatever, and I think every Enneagram has a type has a, a version of that, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that's so important to highlight that wherever we do see our strengths that we do need to pay attention, you know, just like that detail oriented example that you gave, like we need to pay attention to what that shadow is because mm -hmm. otherwise it comes to like bite you in the butt at some point in time. And it's, it's very easy to, you know, whether you're a one that wants to be right all the time or a two that wants to serve all the time. And sometimes you just need to like step back or stand up for yourself and, you know, have a little more eight energy or, you know, whatever it is. So to pay attention to those shadow parts, um, yeah, to me, it doesn't have to be like your sole focus. I think it's wonderful to be able to play to your strengths and find outlets where you feel most yourself and alive and, you know, get to use your gifts and you're in flow. But if you don't, yeah, like then if you don't ever um, give those other shadow parts a chance to exercise, you know, mm -hmm. when they're called upon in a certain situation. Yeah. And they are, they are always called upon, right? Because yes. we're constantly stumbling and falling and, and, you know, for you, like being ill, physically ill, presents a multitude, probably the most uh, opportunities um, that most of us have in this life. Like when our physical body goes, that's when all of the issues come up because that's so central to who we are. And I can imagine for you, like as a two, let's say, I mean, there's nothing worse than being sick and not being able to help, which is, so I have a little like thought about this. So the story in the gospels where uh, Jesus heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law and it, it says she immediately got up and began serving them. I've always thought in my head, she must've been a two, like, <laughs> yeah. right? She was like brought back to her normal state of being where she could make dinner or whatever it is that, you know, that she was doing. That's right. Uh, I don't know. There's something beautiful about that, but it's hard, right? When physical illness takes away whatever it is that kind of makes us feel alive or, or uh, gives us a purpose. It is, especially because I, for me, I have a part that has 
so many dreams and desires, you know, also being this like HSP, this highly sensitive person, when I feel things, I feel them deeply, you know, and so there's just like so much that I wanted to do, which sometimes I kind of have to smile at like, yes, okay, I know there's ego in that too, I'm sure. But there's also just genuine God given desire, I think, in anything that we long for deeply. Mm -hmm. And so I, yeah, I've I've had to continually remind myself just to trust that like if it's meant to be, if God has given you this desire, he will fulfill it. Yeah, right. I don't know how and it might not be right now, it might not be in 10 years. Like I don't, maybe it's after I die. I don't know. <laughs> but to be able to sit in in the ache, in the need, in the poverty and just say like I can't do this. I I need help. Mm -hmm. I need divine help. I need help from my community from my family from whoever mm -hmm. yeah. yeah well and then and asking for help might be your way of helping them maybe people are looking for an outlet to give you know i think it's so hard with the last two years with lockdowns and and just isolation in general right i mean we've focused a lot on what people don't have and rightfully so but we've also there's also the other side of it which is a ton of people have a lot to give mm -hmm. and the outlets for doing that are you know, decreasing in terms of just the most obvious, easy ones to tap into. Um, and so there's, there's like this dearth of, I don't know, energy that feels like it's not being, you know, people need things and people have things to give and getting those people together is harder. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. But I appreciate forums like this where, you know, we can talk <laughs> and that's, you know, for people who love to talk, that's a great way to connect and to, to fulfill that a little bit. Yes, absolutely. I can't believe an hour has already gone by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for sharing on this um, adventure with me as we explore all of the wonderful things that um, the divine brings up in our interiors. Um, that's one of my favorite things about spiritual wanderlust is just like, let's just see where, you know, this, this sense of longing and our wandering brings us and um, where the divine is and all of that. So it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, Carl. And thank you everyone for listening today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Spiritual Wanderlust. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider leaving us a review or sharing it with others. It really does help us to reach more kindred spirits who are hungry for the depths. To learn more about what we're up to, or to access our free resources for spiritual growth, visit us at www.spiritualwanderlust.org. May your days ahead be spacious, sprightly, and surprising. See you next time.